Hey, good afternoon, everybody. I'm David Ahrens, and I'm here for Madison Bookbeat. Uh, this is your weekly WRT show uh, featuring books of significance. And I'm here today with the author and activist, John Melrod. John is the author of Fighting Times. This is a history of student and worker organizing as it transpired in Madison in the 60s and 70s and then in the early 80s and uh, throughout the, the decade in the Milwaukee and Kenosha area. John worked at auto plants in Milwaukee and then American Motors in Kenosha and This was an area that was known for very intense labor management conflicts. It's also a memoir of the writer and a leader of many of those fights, John Melrod. Melrod's memoir takes us from his early education to his years as a student and revolutionary at UW-Madison during the late 60s and early 70s. Then it follows him through 13 years of working in and organizing factories in Milwaukee and Kenosha, building militant union organizations, and then culminating in a critically important lawsuit that is still significant today. Welcome, John, and thanks for taking the time to discuss your book with us. Well, I really appreciate being able to be on the show. There's probably nowhere else that I'd feel as comfortable as Madison Bookbee because so much of my life, well, so much of my life was spent in Wisconsin in general, mm-hmm. but, you know, a really significant portion uh, that was spent in Madison, which really led to my political development and my political maturity that took me into the working class in 1972. Yeah. Um, I- And that's exactly what I wanted to focus on today is there's so many different facets of the book that we could uh, get into about the auto industry and um, uh, unionism and trade unionism in the United States. But what I wanted to focus on really is your career as an activist and as an advocate. And I see those as being somewhat separated in the the advocacy part, I felt reading your book, grew out of being an activist. Um, so if, if we could trace that as, so you really started as a pretty blunt edge activist uh, in the Madison student revolutionary days in the 60s, which are much discussed. Um, but was that really organizing then and how you developed um, as a very thoughtful, meticulous, a very strategic activist over a period of time and then, you know, became an advocate as an attorney? First thing that I wanted to get at, though, was I found the part of the book about uh, after you're fired at the AMC body plant and you spend sort of two years wandering around the desert of of Milwaukee uh, factories, uh, these seem to be the worst factories in the area, and they were primarily hiring um, uh, black and Latino workers, tar- tanneries, uh, blast furnaces, uh all kinds of chemical fumes that later took a toll on your life. Um, it's a grim picture, a really grim picture of daily life of millions of workers that we're really never exposed to. What drove you to stay in those conditions? Was it your commitment as a communist revolutionary, as a sympathetic outsider? What was it that kept you going back day after day? Well, that's a really good and fairly deep question. Um, You know, the story sort of goes back to Madison. You know, before I left Madison in 1971, we had been members of basically what was called the Revolutionary Youth Movement II, RIM II. And two of the central principles of that organization were that we would, on leaving college campus, we would either go into the military to oppose the Vietnam War, 
or we would go into the factory to spread the message of, you know, systemic change that needed to take place to, you know, replace the capitalist system with something more equitable and just. So it was very deep in us. I mean, we may talk about Madison later in the book, but by the time I left, it was already, we had, I felt that I was on the path to a mission for life. You know, I didn't, I expected that that's where I would be for the remainder of my work life was in the working class. And you're right, I was fired. I mean, I got fired because <laughs> I was really set up by the FBI. On my website, which people can take a look at if they want, jonathanmelrod.com, I put up a couple hundred pages of my FBI file. And there's a, le- a memorandum from the FBI to American Motors after we had caused a lot of mass disruptions on the factory floor over overtime, forced overtime and speed up that charged American Motors with, you gotta fire this guy. You gotta get rid of him. You know, he's part of a group that's doing this in other factories in Milwaukee. He's creating work stoppages. He's building caucuses and he needs to be discharged. So the discharge, they actually had to drag me physically out of the factory um, because a lot of the workers were yelling to sit down. This was still a period of a lot of heightened <laughs> militancy. In fact, in 1969, just a couple of years before I got there, there had been 13 wildcat unauthorized walkouts at the AMC and Kenosha plant in a single week. So you can imagine, you know, the history of Did militant they action. Get any, they produced two cars during that period? Precisely. <laughs> uh, and the quality wasn't too high. Yeah. But, um, you know, so, but I was determined. First thing was, you know, I stood outside the factory, and I can't use the language on air, but I looked up at the factory and basically said, you mark my words, I'll be back here someday. Mm-hmm. And so one of my goals in, you know, immediate goals was was figuring out how to wage a long term campaign to win my job back. Mm -hmm. But having lost my job, I decided to use the opportunity to learn about, as you say, other sectors of the Milwaukee working class that most, you know, people weren't exposed to, particularly white workers. And the first one was to go into the CETA, Comprehensive Employment Training Act, which was run by the federal government to to pick up a skill. I was a welder. And that was great. I was on my way to almost having a welding certificate that would have opened up certain jobs to me, except that the government didn't come through with our paychecks. And I organized a work stoppage and a march on the office and we got our paychecks, but I got fi- thrown out of the program. <laughs> I didn't have a welding certificate. So much for your career um, as a welder. Yeah. <laughs> but no, but I did actually go to Crucible Steel, mm-hmm. which was a steelworkers local where I figured I would have a certain level of protection if I could make it into the union. And I was, you know, I was welding on third shift Mack truck axles which was, you know, I mean, I was the only white guy on the floor and it was all blacks and a few Latinos. And it was really some of the toughest work. I mean, we were breathing, you know, there was no ventilation. We were breathing straight up welding smoke Mm -hmm. all Mm -hmm. night long. Mm -hmm. And when they poured the steel, molten steel into the sand molds, the silica dust Mm -hmm. just filled the the air. Mm -hmm. And I, I don't think there were ever any statistics kept on how many of the workers who worked there for a period of time came down with silicosis, which is, you know, the natural result of breathing in, you know, silicon in the air. Mm -hmm. So at least I thought I had landed myself a job that wasn't wasn't an easy job and was working on third shift, but at least it was work and I was learning a lot about, you know, this particular sector of the working class that really was, you know, at the bottom rung of the industrial ladder. Unfortunately, it took 90 days to get into the union. And probably on the 88th day, the superintendent was waiting for me at the 
time clock and he said, I got to talk to you in my office, Malrod. And he said, you know, you're a good worker. I got no complaints with your work, but um, I was visited by some federal people today and they told me I need to get rid of you. And I'm sorry, I don't really want to, but they've told me, you know, that you're a troublemaker, that you're on a list for being blackballed and you got it. And I got to discharge you. So there went that job. Mm-hmm. So I knew it was going to be a go ahead. Yeah, I was going to say that. So you you come into this plant that's, um, you know, un, unbelievably shocking and uh, dangerous uh, working conditions. Everyone in the plant is uh, black. Many people uh, come from the south there you know, generally new immigrants uh, into the North. And did you sometimes look and say, hey, I'm the only guy out here in this plant of 500 workers. They have a different background, different culture. How am I going to turn this around? Well, you know, that's an interesting question because I've been asked it many times. But actually, the transition, you know, from Madison to the factory was no big deal. Um, You know, I mean, first of all, I had studied, I had majored in labor studies. So, you know, my dream was, was to be a labor, you know, radical and militant. But second of all, you know, if you're just a normal person and you relate to people on normal everyday things from watching the racist Archie Bunker on All in the Family to, you know, whatever's happening with their families and your family, it's, you know, there's no there's no big mm-hmm. chasm that needs to be breached mm-hmm. uh, or crossed, rather. So, you know, that wasn't really an issue, particularly at American Motors, because it was a period when American Motors, which I don't know how many of your listeners will have heard of, but they were, it was a big, you know, it was number fourth in the chain of auto companies. And there were a lot of young workers going to work there at the same time, literally hundreds. And the black workers and the brown workers, most of them had come straight from the jungles of Vietnam to the factory floor. And they had already dealt with the system. Mm-hmm. And they had, had strong opinions about it. <laughs> Yeah. I mean, they had learned that they were second class citizens and they weren't going to be treated as second class citizens in the factory. So there was a rebelliousness that existed among those workers that didn't have anything to do with me. that had to do with their experiences in Vietnam in refusing to fight in refusing orders, you know, from second lieutenants who were getting fragged, you know, shot by their own troops Mm -hmm. who didn't want to fight the war. I mean, it was actually, in the end, the resistance of GIs that ended that war because they couldn't successfully run a war without soldiers who were willing to fight it. Mm -hmm. But in any event, Mm -hmm. there was that contingent of workers. There were a lot, a lot of young white workers who were basically of the Woodstock generation. They were rebellious. They came into work with bell bottoms and long hair, and there was an identity and an affinity with the youth rebellion. So again, Mm -hmm. you know, it was easy to fit right in. And there were also quite a few younger women that joined up right away who were members of the church. And they had a real sense from being in the black church of community, solidarity, you know, the need for organization. So if you just looked and learned from people, if you didn't come in planning to lecture them on socialism or, you know, what we needed from an ideological political point of view. But if you came in to relate to them with them on their everyday grievances, which could be not having a fan in the summer, which could be having too much work on your job and you made those issues your issues, it wasn't a particularly, you know, difficult leap to be accepted and to be, you know, considered one of the, uh, you know, fellow workers in the factory. So so you're not lecturing them about uh, socialism. So you're pulling back. I mean, you are, are, say, as a, you are out as a communist, 
Right. And uh, the the employer kept reminding everybody that you were a communist, um, and that's not something that you denied. Um, but uh, it's not something that you pushed, on the other hand, either. I mean, the things that you talked about with workers with the concerns, as you say, of their everyday problems with their employment, not with the capitalist system as a whole. Well, that, that's right. And it, and it takes a certain delicate balancing act to figure out how much weight to give each of those, the economic struggle on one hand and the political struggle against the system and against capitalism on the other hand. It's true. About the third month that I was at American Motors and I was in, you know, now initiated into the UAW, I was out in front of the gates of the plant selling the Milwaukee Worker, which was a paper, as it said on the second page, was put out by the Revolutionary Union, a communist organization. And that paper, you know, I sold even in the early days before people got to know me, you know, 25, 30 papers at the gates. But it also identified me as somebody who held views that were, you know, very political because the worker was filled with articles that were about class consciousness, you know, strikes in other factories, strikes around the world, liberation struggles around the world. But, you know, there was there was a lot of we were still coming out of the McCarthy period. You have to keep in mind. And you were, and, and we were still, also fighting in Vietnam. I and mean, we were, yeah. <laughs> we were fighting communists. We were fighting communists in <laughs> Vietnam. So, but, but, but there's a good part to that story, which is, you know, uh, about four months into being there, I was standing in the punch out line with a stack of Milwaukee workers under my arm. And there was this whole group of white conservative workers who had all worked in what was called the cushion room, which was <laughs> off the line and they were easier jobs. <clears throat> and they were kind of in the union clique and they had been, you know, put into those jobs and they were really indoctrinated with the Korean War. Uh-huh. Okay. Mm-hmm. And when they turned to me and saw that I was carrying these Milwaukee workers, they started yelling at me right on the punch out line in front of hundreds of people. Hey, you're a goddamn communist and you better not sell that paper or you're going to end up like Roy Webb Jr. did. And I didn't know what had happened to Roy Webb Jr. at the moment, but it was certainly an intimidating experience. And there was a black guy who was in front of me in line who stood up and he started talking back to these workers who were harassing me. And he said, look, I just came back from the jungles of Vietnam. You know, he said, I was there fighting for a government I didn't believe in. I I was fighting a war (laughs) that I didn't believe in. And I sure as hell didn't come back here to let you tell my man Melrod what he what what he can and what he can't believe. So I don't ever want to see you harassing him again. His name wow. was Jimmy Graham. We're friends to this day. And when I was out in Milwaukee doing a book tour event at um, what's the independent bookstore on the east side? Um, uh, whatever the name of that store mm-hmm. was. He, he showed up after all these years, and I introduced him to people, and he became one of the first stewards under me when I was elected chief steward in the Kenosha plant. Hmm. So, yeah, and then the company was always out there, you know, circulating, hey, Melrod's a communist, he's been involved with the Black Panther Party, he's in SDS. I mean, they had a whole, you know, playbook to, to, to spread. Did the... Um... Over time, did the political work, the um, meaning, you know, educating people about the capitalist system, et cetera, et cetera, did that become much less important uh, than uh, dealing with the crisis of the plant and and developing um, a victory within the union structure as a whole? I would phrase it a little differently than less important. I would more say that we had identified, or I had identified, twin goals, which was one, 
you've got to be rooted in the day-to-day economic struggles. That's your center of gravity. That's how people need to identify you as the guy with the guts to stand up to the company, as the guy who's willing to organize a walkout because there's a blizzard and the company won't let us get out of work in Kenosha and drive home to Milwaukee. At the same time, you know, to me, it was a dead end if we didn't bring these larger struggles, you know, which could be the coal miner strike, which I think was a hundred day strike in those days. Mm -hmm. And we collected thousands of dollars worth of food at the factory gates. Thousands of workers were wearing the buttons we made up, support the coal miners strike. And we talked about it as these are class wide issues. There are brothers and sisters. They're facing the brunt of the capitalist system right now that's threatening to take away their right to strike. And we drove a whole contingent of us down to Southern Illinois to deliver food and to meet with mine workers. And it wasn't just mine workers. I don't know if you'll remember, but whatever year it was, the police in Milwaukee shot and killed a young black guy named Jerry Brookshire. And when we organized the first uh, Martin Luther King Day celebration in Kenosha, one of the caucus members um, who still lives out in Milwaukee, John Drew, was on the Fair Employment Practices Committee and they invited a speaker to speak about the struggle for justice for Jerry Brookshire to, to the event in the union hall. Mm-hmm. So we were always had one leg or at least five toes dipped <laughs> into the political struggle, yeah. which, you know, was very important because people changed so dramatically over the years, you know, but, you know, I, well, maybe we'll get into it. But people's political evolution really mirrored their militancy in terms of trade unionism. Yeah. The um, one of the things that was uh, striking, again, is um, is as as you progress through the union structure, uh, become more deeply involved with it and become steward and so on. uh, You're very clear that you were methodical about identifying militant or class-conscious workers and bringing them into your caucus, encouraging them to run for stewards and through the committee structure. This, of course, is a a much different process than at UW, where you'd call a protest and a thousand people would show up. Um, uh, And to me, it differentiated how you know, the anti-war movement was just that, a movement. But at AMC, your goal was to build an organization. And that would live on and move on and develop a life of its own with a different form of leadership. And to do that, you needed to be methodical about it. And I guess that's what I was talking about in terms of your your transition as an activist um over time yeah i i think there's a lot of truth to what you're saying you know and we were you know determined to build a rank and file caucus within the uaw to bring about reform to bring up about democratization to bring about you know to, to 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 bring the rank and file into a leadership position in the union mm-hmm um, so, you know, that was an important goal, but at the same time, fighting times, you know, and the name of my book is fighting times organizing on the front lines of the class war. And if people want to get it, we've actually put it on sale, discounted by 40%. So you just go to pmpress.org. And if you put in the discount code fighting in capital letters, you get the discount. But one of the things that I write about in that book is that Fighting Times, the caucus and the newsletter became a movement. You know, when we were put on in, on trial in the trial that you referred to, where we were sued okay. for four point two million dollars mm-hmm. for defamation, where the company had surreptitiously funded. Let's get into some, that. Let's start, just start from the beginning on that. Before we do, though, I've got to say. <clears throat> 
Uh, you're listening to Madison Bookbeat. Um, I'm David Ahrens, and I'm uh, talking today with John Melrude, who's the author of Fighting Times, a look back at the uh, growth of a uh, really viable, successful uh, union caucus in uh, Milwaukee and Kenosha in the uh, uh, 70s and 80s. Uh, having said that, let's talk about, well, first there was the newspaper Fighting Times, which was a product of your caucus of the same name at the right. UAW plant in uh, in Kenosha. And I couldn't believe, you know, and you had a feature every month in Fighting Times called Scab of the Month, <laughs> in which you <laughs> featured a... Um, plant official. So let's take it from there. Well, that was actually one of the most successful things that we did, because one of the important lessons when you're putting out a shop newsletter is how do you involve the rank and file? Because a lot of people don't know how to write, don't feel comfortable writing. And, you know, scab of the month allowed people to either write a little short letter telling us about something their foreman had done that was outrageous or misogynist or racist, you know, or to write in letters. And so it was a way to, you know, mm -hmm. develop involvement on the shop floor in the creation of the newsletter. And one of the things that came to our mind was that there were particular foremen that were worthy of being called out as scab of the month. And we really went after some of these guys because they were really, you know, it's hard to believe that that kind of warfare went on on the shop floor on an almost daily basis. I mean, I'll just give you one example. There was one foreman, Stevie Freeman, who we branded scab of the month, who at one point went up to two black women workers, put his fingers you know, with his thumb up in the shape of a pistol, and he pointed it at them and said, bang, bang, two dead blackbirds. And hmm. then he said, I'd like you better if you were. She was scared to tell her husband because he would come in and kill, kill the former. <laughs> so these are just, hmm. you know, and there was one, one last story where there was a black worker who was having trouble on his job, and the Steve Freeman picked up a 35-pound air gun threw it at him and called him a lazy MF N-word. So we just put it all right out there in the fighting times. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it caused an uproar. I mean, people were petitioning to get rid of the, the, the foreman, Freeman. People were writing him up. Every time he'd so much as pick up a screw, mm -hmm. there was a rule that no supervisor could do union work. This was so an incredible thing that I... I found in your book was, it really was I've, incredible. I've never heard of a, a, a provision in a contract that had a bounty that if an employer, if a union, if a non-union employer did any union work, then the person who turned them in got an hour and a half pay. Is that right? Is that an right? hour's pay. That's right. <laughs> you know, and there were some guys that would keep tally of how many how many hours foreman they had written up grievances on. Um, you know, I got to digress one second yeah. and really yeah. thank you, David, because yeah. a lot of times I'm on these interviews and people haven't really read the book or paid attention to oh. it. You know, but you really understand. Oh, I loved it. I loved it. Yeah. Well, I appreciate that. So I hope some of the, your listeners will appreciate that as well. And yeah, let, let me just say, too, uh, and I'll say it again at the end, that um, uh, John is going to be in Madison. He's coming back, folks. Um, he's coming back next Thursday, September 28th, 6 p.m., at Room of One's Own uh, on Madison, on Atwood Avenue, and he'll be appear appearing with Bill Fletcher, who's also a uh, pretty well-known labor writer who's uh, been in this area for a long time. The day before, he'll be at the Havens Wright Center uh, on campus in the Social, uh, uh, is it social Science Building. So let me just get that out there that um, he'll be 
here, and you have an opportunity to uh, talk to him about many of these instances as well. Let's get back to the Scab of the Month, because so you're putting out the Scab of the Month feature. Then what happens? Well, then there was another foreman who worked in the metal department, and we went after him as well because, you know, he had the same litany of, you know, mistreatment of workers. We were able to get him fired as well. So these were the first two supervisors that ever been fired in the history of the local union because of pressure that came, you know, from the rank and file. I'm trying to remember what year it was. If it was 19, it must have been either uh, 71, 72, 73, something like that. All of a sudden we were served with a lawsuit. 80, 81, 82. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah. excuse me. Yeah. 81, 82. Yeah, it gets, it gets all mixed up after a while, doesn't it? Yeah. yeah. I was being sued at the same time. <laughs> Go okay. ahead. Brothers in uh, yeah. infamy. But, yeah. but uh, it was a lawsuit challenging us for defama- defamation. And it was a $4.2 million lawsuit, which made it, a, you know, at first we didn't pay much attention to it. Like, where do we get $4.2 million? You know, what's the big deal here? And then it sort of crept up on us to where we had a court date. And we had to really begin to hustle uh, to prepare our defense. And unfortunately, our first lawyer had failed to move it into federal court where your protections are a lot stronger in, you know, being able to, you know, use language that's defamatory normally. But if it's in the context of, you know, attacking a foreman and, you know, in the plant, that it would be protected under federal law. But it wasn't so protected under state law. And in preparing for that, the three of us who were at the center of the Fighting Times Caucus really turned ourselves into, you know, almost paralegals. I mean, we went out and we found, I believe it was 50 witnesses who agreed to testify to the veracity and the truthfulness of everything they had written in Fighting Times. Right. And truthfulness, the truthfulness of the statement is the primary defense in a slander suit. Yeah. Yeah, you've been sued for defamation. (laughs) Truth is the the ultimate defense to defamation. So after the, you know, weeks of testimony, which was really pretty exciting and lively because it brought to life the character of what the factory (laughs) floor was like. And the jury, we had spent a lot of time, our attorneys, picking a jury of our peers. And I have a list in the book. I think every one of them was a a wage worker Mm -hmm. in a factory or as a secretary. So there was an obvious affinity. You could feel it in the courtroom between the jury and those of us. And particularly when you had like the plant manager, I believe he was, Robert Fesco was on the stand. And the lawyer says to him, well, let me ask you, Mr. Fesco, in your factory, is it okay for a foreman to call a black worker the N-word? And Fesco goes, well, it could be. And the attorney says, well, what do you mean, sir, that it could be okay? And he says, well, under circumstances, that could be okay. Well, I mean, I was Personally, I was actually flabbergasted (laughs) that he was dumb enough to put that into the record. But there it stood that. Mm -hmm. And so then our lawyer says to him, well, Mr. Fesco, then did you ever write to the Fighting Times to thank them for bringing that to your attention? (laughs) And he goes, no, I never did. (laughs) So so in the end, you know, the judge who was very pro company and you in in Racine, you know, it's a small town, you know, a small ruling, ruling elite. He really was sided with the company just endlessly throughout the trial in his motions and in his, mm-hmm. you know, way of conducting the, the trial. And he found that as a matter of law, that meant he took it away from the jury, but found as a matter of law that we had in fact defamed two of the supervisors. There were initially five, and there were only two left. 
that he said that we had defamed them on these very picky charges that if we had we had called one of them completely ill-equipped for a job. And he said, well, I wouldn't say he was completely ill-equipped. He was just not particularly ill-equipped. <laughs> so he was really finding a hook yeah. to hang those charges on. But it was a Friday and we walked out of court and he had ruled that we had libeled mm -hmm. to plaintiffs. So my lawyer, our lawyer rather, a, a great lawyer from Washington, D.C., named Warren, named Warren Kaplan, spent the weekend at my house in Racine where he was staying, working on legal arguments. And I didn't know much about the law at that time, but he was really brilliant because when he came in on the Monday morning, the first thing he said is, Your Honor, I have a motion to make. And that is that we included jury instruction that even if you found as a matter of law that these three defendants from Fighting Times had libeled supervisors, the jury can award zero monetary damages. Hmm. And it only took the jury a few hours to come back and award zero damages against any of, against any of uh, the plaintiffs. Mm -hmm. So that basically they had taken the case away from the judge right. and had refused to honor his ruling. And once they boarded a zero damages, the National Labor Relations Board stepped back in, sued American Motors for $230,000 to pay our legal fees and our back wages. And it turned into a complete victory. So how did th this is the interesting part where I mean, the other parts are interesting as well. But I mean, how it became known that the AMC management sort of procured this litigation. This wasn't something that arose out of the hearts or minds of the plaintiff foreman. This is something that was was established and paid for by the by the uh, corporation itself. Well, you know, we had always assumed it was the corporation, which would be natural assumption, mm -hmm. but we had no hard evidence, no proof of that. And what happened was that there was a very, very militant, honest, you know, old school trade unionist, Rudy Kuzel. Yes, who, I, I, mm -hmm. I knew who Rudy, you know, was mm -hmm. president, you know, after I left of the of the remaining, you know, members of the local. And he was in the employment office and he saw the secretary compiling the addresses of a list of people. And he noticed that all of them worked in Steve Freeman's section of the assembly line, one of the plaintiffs. So it occurred to him, why are they compiling a list of people who were contributors to Fighting Times? And he went to top management and said, look, your job is to build cars. And I have a suspicion that you have something to do with these foremen who sued Fighting Times. And that's just not okay in my book. You know, the union has a right to free speech. You know, your job is to make cars. And they told him they would get back to him with an answer if they, if they in fact, were financing it. And because he was very well respected by both the union, by union people, and also by the company, because he was a straight shooter. He was a militant, but he didn't play games. He was an honest straight shooter. And they admitted to him that they were behind it. And Amazing. he went to the Labor Relations <laughs> Board and wrote out a declaration that he had been told directly that, that American Motors was financing the lawsuit. Now, that the judge had ruled that that was inadmissible during the trial, okay? I mean, there could be nothing more germane, more relevant to the case uh -huh. than it was being funded by the same company that had fired the foreman. They were now paying them to sue us. But, you know, the judge ruled that that wasn't, you know, admissible as evidence. So it wasn't until after the actual trial 
when we went to the National Labor Relations Board that we were able to produce that declaration that, ex that said that the company was behind it, which is why the Labor Board sued them for an unfair labor practice. And you're, so you, that, were your attorney fees recovered uh, from that? Yeah. They were fully recovered. Mm -hmm. I mean, they were expensive. I mean, it was $230,000 yeah. check. Yeah. So that's probably over a half million or three quarters of a million dollar in today's dollars. Yeah. So, you know, and when the word went out that we had actually won and that no damages had been awarded, we called into the factory, which was on second shift. They were still working to tell the chief stewards that we had won. And a roar of approval went up and down the assembly line. <laughs> and that's what I meant that Fighting Times was a movement because literally thousands of workers supported us in that trial. They gave us money to support, you know, or helping us pay the law fees. They wore buttons, you know, save free, free speech, support the Fighting Times. So there was a, tr it was a movement to support and, us. And did the international union uh, back you at all? No, the international union told the local union that they were not going to intervene and had no position uh, on the matter. So, which deterred the local union leadership, most of it, from taking a position on the trial, with the exception of Rudy Kuzel, who was, you know, always his own man. If he believed in something, he'd stand up for it. Yeah. Uh, now, this... What happened to you um, really has continued to happen all over, and uh, these instances of what's called slap suits, um, and it's it's using libel and slander litigation as a way of muting any dissent. We have a number of cases now, uh, just to interject here in Wisconsin, where um, uh, legislators who said horrible things, shall we say, and were reported in progressive newspapers, have now sued those newspapers for uh, slander and libel and have cost them such enormous uh, attorney fees that they've, one of them has had to cease publication. And um, there's a legis legislation now to, uh, in the state, to try to get a grip on that and try to put an end to these frivolous suits, but the purpose of it is to just bleed um, the defendants dry, and that is to, and then to shut them up. So once again, uh, you're sort of a vanguard, un, unwanting to be vanguard in that area. Well, that's really an incredible story that I didn't know about. I mean, if, if you can't have the right as a legislator to speak openly you know, it's really um, a crime against free speech, to say the least. Yeah. Um, you know, it just reflects the, you know, the unfortunate, you know, tend toward the right in terms of, you know, all kinds of things, including the right to free speech, unless it's a right winger who's talking. The end of the book is, is really, it's a sad ending. I mean, as the plant bought by Renault, the French uh, manufacturer, and then different changes in consumer buying take place, and you know small cars sort of go out of fashion, and so on and so on. Uh, the plant is an old plant, and sort of the writings on the wall about what's going to happen in Europe. The union is really kind of forced into major concessions and. Some of the key concessions, and I hope we're not getting going to get too technical on this, but it, it's so important. Um, some of the key concessions, in addition to wanting a lot of money back from workers, uh, is how the union is structured as a whole um, and how they really wanted to eliminate the vital, the vitality and the closeness of the union advocate to the guy on the on the line. Can you talk a bit about that, John? Yeah, that's such an important point because you know the one beautiful thing about AMC was that it had it was the most democratic militant union left in the UAW. And that goes back to the early days in 1933 
when there was the first sit down to defend a chief steward who had been fired. But at American Motors, there was a right to strike over all grievances, which was a tremendous it's weapon. It's unheard of elsewhere. Unheard of. Yeah. Although yeah. I think they may have just won it back at the UE plant in Erie, Illinois. Oh. It's been on strike for two months. Mm -hmm. But um, but there was a right to strike all grievances, which we were able to successfully use to block the loss of certain jobs. At one point, the company had actually hired a second shift in Canada and was going to move jobs from Kenosha to Canada. And we took a strike vote. People voted to strike. And a thousand people came out onto 52nd Street in front of the plant to demonstrate against the loss of jobs. But there was the right to strike. There was 100% voluntary overtime. And there was one steward for every 35 employees on the assembly line which was just an incredible level of representation. You only had to work on your job a half hour a day before you could check out on union business. Mm -hmm. So, you know, that was the tradition that had been so important. And what Raynaud really came in and said they were had to do was that our cost were our cost of producing a car were more than they were at the big three because of many of those benefits that we had won. And there were many more, but they're too <laughs> detailed to go into. Yeah. But after you know a couple of months, I was on the bargaining committee at that point, the executive board rather, and you know some others who were leaders of the caucus had also been elected. And the company said, basically, you've got to put your contract in line with the contracts at the big three, because we can't afford to pay you or to, for you to cost us more per unit than the big three is. Mm -hmm. And we also did the numbers and figured out that they were, in one sense, they weren't lying. They could produce the same two Renault models that we were making in Kenosha in unused capacity in French plants at a lower cost, even shipping them to the United wow. States. Mm -hmm. So we had to make a tough decision, you know, particularly those of us young guys who had always been opposed to any concessions you know, we had to make a decision. And as Rudy called it, he was president of the union at that point. At the union meeting, he said, look, here's your choice. Do you want a job that's equivalent to a job in the big three? Or do you want no job at all? Because if we maintain the contract we've had, they will close down. Yeah. And we, we all supported Rudy in that vote as did mo you know vast majority of the membership that we had to make those concessions unfortunately it was the beginning of a, opening a much larger door to the deindustrialization of the midwest right which is just a travesty last time i was in milwaukee i don't think there's a single factory left except maybe masterlock on its last legs mm -hmm. from what existed in the days when the unions ran yeah. the factory in milwaukee mm -hmm. But, you know, one of the things that people might find interesting I is I go on. through each of those rights that we had at American Motors that once existed in the entire big three. You know, when the big three unions were first formed in the 30s, they also had the right to strike. They also had a better union representation ratio. And those were eroded over the years Walter Ruther traded those rights away for better COLA, better vacation, better pay. And I outline when he did it in each of the three big three local yeah, big yeah. three contracts. Yeah, yeah. Uh, let, uh, me let me just, just uh, uh, cut, off cut off here. here. Um, um, one second. Yeah. Um, can you just tell us again about how you can order this book, John? Yeah, yeah. I yeah. mean, I... You know, it's really great because when I've been on the radio and podcast, people do order the book right afterwards because they're somewhat interested. And the way to go is to just pmpress.org, pmpress.org. And once you find the book Fighting Times, if you type in the discount code FIGHTING in capital letters, you'll get the book at a 45% discount. So it'll be available right to you now, and I'd be happy to sign it when I appear at a room of its own, one's own, 
and they'll also be selling them when I do the book event there. So I'd like to invite all your guests to that event and we can carry this conversation on and I can answer questions that people may have had after our really educated discussion with you, David. <laughs> so uh -huh. I think I hope there's a lot of interest. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, again, John will be at Room One Zone in a little more than two weeks, September 28th. Um, this is a, uh, a a piece of history like most labor history is, is lost to us. I mean, millions of people participate in these struggles and we just um, they're they're missing parts of, of our society and our consciousness. Um, so thanks for for bringing this out and and doing your memoir, which, uh, in addition to being very helpful for your sons, uh, is helpful for uh, young uh, activists everywhere uh, in the country and uh, and shows the development really of a person. I'm sorry we didn't get into being able to talk to your work as a uh, as a lawyer for refugees, maybe there'll be a second volume about that uh, coming uh, in the next few years, because I'm sure that has, uh, you know, quite a bit to learn from that. So this has been uh, Madison Bookbeat. I'm David Ahrens. Again, I want to thank John Melrude for being with us today and thank uh, our engineer, uh, Andrew Thomas, who's uh, giving me the signals about uh, what to say and when to say it, <laughs> and and uh, Sholly Pittman, our news director. Do you have time for me to interject one very, very yeah. quick comment, which is on the website, jonathanmelrod.com, there's an extensive, extensive history of the student movement in Madison that I compiled from old Cardinal articles. Okay. There wasn't room for most of it in the book, but it really changed people's minds and understanding of how the student movement developed in the late 60s and early 70s. All right. That's a good uh, pointer there. So jonathanmelrude.com. And it's it's provides, you know, tons of other background material of not just struggles in Madison, but uh, the whole history of, um, of the Milwaukee and Kenosha uh, movements. Thanks again very much, and thanks for listening. Up, up next is uh, Jazz in the Afternoon. Thank you. Thanks, David.